Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Last weekend, I'm your host Benny, and thank you for tuning in, folks. We are only a few weeks into 2023, and already there has been enough cricketing action to keep us entertained. There's been blistering knocks, hat tricks, low scores, and even the bi-weekly debate on established rules of the game. All of this spread out over franchise T20 tournaments, international games, and under-19 cricket. And it is under-19 cricket we're going to talk about today. Our guest today is co-founder of Emerging Cricket and content contributor for the International Cricket Council, aka ICC, Daniel Beswick. We spoke with Daniel about why we should be excited about the first edition of the ongoing Under-19 Women's World Cup, the emerging cricketing talent in Indonesia and Rwanda, the participation of senior cricketers in the Under-19 tournament, and even the rising incidence of bowlers running out batsmen at the non-striker stand. This was a fun and illuminating conversation with Daniel, so stay tuned for all that and more. All right, Daniel. So let's let's dive in. So we uh, wanted to talk to you about the Under Nineteen Women's World Cup, and by the time this episode drops, uh, we'll be quite a you know a few games in already. Uh, but I was fascinated to hear that this is really the first. Um, women's under 19 world cup and obviously the men's under 19 uh world cup started back in 1988 and they've been pretty much regular since 1998 uh so a lot of people say this was long overdue you know for the women's under 19 world cup so uh very exciting times and um i'm just curious as someone who's really it took me a long time to get into women's cricket first of all um, and my first thought when they announced Women's Under-19 World Cup was, I wouldn't call it indifference, but it didn't really hit me as something that I should necessarily be concerned with or excited about. I just didn't feel anything. So why don't you tell me why this is exciting and, you know, for fans of the game, what is there to look forward to? 
Well, I'll start with the action that we have seen so far on the field as we do record. And first of all, thanks for, for having me, guys, Mark and, and Benny, yeah. uh, joining joining you guys to talk cricket. I think for me, and it's always, this is a big selling point for any underage tournament in, in any sport is to see the future basically in front of your eyes. You know, if you look five to 10 years down the track, uh, if some of the results we've seen so far in the Under-19 World Cup are anything to go by, we have an incredibly... Uh, enticing and exciting uh, standard of women's senior level cricket. Again, to move forward, say, five or ten years with some of the action and and some of the surprises we've seen thus far at the tournament. I think, for me, it's a great opportunity just to continue and just to kind of build a a bridge and a pathway that goes from junior uh, elite level cricket in these respective countries into something tangible where they can compare themselves on on the world stage. I think that's the most important thing. If you look at the under-19 Men's World Cup over the years, I think the way that teams are are compiled is certainly different in different parts of the world. You know, in some places, the under-19 pathway and framework is is really strong and they have centred elite camps that they basically pick their team from. But to take other examples, and that actually happens almost more in the subcontinent, but to take an example of, say, this Women's Under-19 World Cup, uh, if you look at some of the established sides in in Asia, we look at Bangladesh, who, who turned over Australia at the start of the tournament, which is an unbelievable result. Many people will actually turn around and tell you that it's not really a surprise because the way that the Bangladesh system has been set up, they tend to fast-track a lot of younger players through the system quicker. And in Australia, it, it goes back to a almost an older kind of framework where players need to make the name for themselves in senior cricket at domestic level for years upon years before they get into an Australian team. And the way that the Australian team was actually com- composed in this particular under-19s tournament was that they had an under-19 carnival in sort of the two, three months leading up to the tournament. And that's essentially where they picked their team. So the, the way that these teams are comprised, I think, makes it exciting. And it just provides a great yardstick for a lot of people looking at the world of cricket, trying to understand, you know, who are the next emerging powers in the game? Where do we see women's cricket in the next five to 10 years? And from what we have seen of the Women's World Cup thus far, I think, again, it's a, it's a hugely exciting period down the line where we will see more competition eventually against some of the, the giants of the game at, at senior level. And to be honest, I think that's that's kind of it, its hook and it's what it should be its hook. It's, it's the next generation. You get to see it now, you know, it's. I think you guys could probably attest to this, but if you're sitting around having lunch with with mates or you're hanging out with mates watching cricket, the best thing to have is a little bit of knowledge, pub knowledge up your sleeve, and knowing some of these players a little bit early before everyone else, and kind of gives you a little bit of street cred around the circuit. It's good to kind of have that, and that's how I kind of see this with the under 19s tournament. It's a great opportunity to, to see the game's future. No, I, I agree. I mean, um, as far as in the men's, you know, under 19 men's cricket, you know, a lot of the players uh, who do well, um, I've actually been following them to see um, because, you know, I, I look at a couple of players in the under 19 circuit, especially the, during the World Cups. And I see, OK, this 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 person has a long career ahead of him. And it's always fascinating to see how they actually convert that potential um into performance and if they actually make it. So if that's the same that can happen for women's cricket, that's going to be uh, exciting. Uh, But talking about, you know, stuff to talk about, uh, you know, kind of things that you might talk about with your friends about, you know, what's happening at the World Cup. 
one thing that has caught my attention is something that the whole cricket world, like it seems every other week, we do the same debate uh, again and again on, on repeat. But uh, the quote unquote Mankhud uh, or the uh, run out of the bowlers end. Um, now, I'll tell you up front, I am very much in favor of it. If it's in the rules, use it. Um, so I, it's, there are very few topics in cricket that really get me riled up, but whenever this debate comes up on Twitter, I, I feel like I need to restrain myself. <laughs> so I am very pleased to see young cricketers, both men and women, not get destigmat, uh, you know, not get stigmatized by it, uh, stigmatized by, you know, well-known cricketers, experts, you know, talking about how these are shameful, it's not in the spirit of the game, to put aside, you know, to tune out all that noise and play it, play the game according to the rules. Um, and that, in my opinion, that also involves an element of skill. So it's really heartening to see young cricketers kind of just tuning out that noise and just playing the game as it should be. So what is what is your take on it? Because it's, I think uh, Mike and I were talking about it earlier. I think there's been at least three instances in the last few days, correct? Well, I completely agree. And Benny, the point that you make is is one that I would personally reiterate. I think it, we've we've definitely reached a crossroads in the conversation for this. And whether or not the MCC rewrites the the laws in the MCC law book, it, it remains to be seen when it, it comes to that time of year again. But you make the, the point that it's it's the kids teaching the adults the lessons of almost how the game should be played in this respect. And I don't know if I ever was anti-mancad, and to use the, the mancad as well, there's stigma around that word as well, but you know, for all intents and purposes, a non-striker run out, whatever you want to call it. I, I think that one of the points that gets made by the older generation who are anti this dismissal is that they're always on this sort of grandstanding view that, oh, this wicket or this dismissal has overshadowed a great game of cricket well to be honest it's the reaction and the negative reaction around the dismissal that's overshadowing it and who's responsible for that the people who are there complaining about it if it's in the laws and within the laws of the game it's a legal dismissal i I don't understand what the conjecture can be and the the element of the spirit of the game i find is too ambiguous and it doesn't convey itself in any meaningful way, shape or form. And it's not written into the laws like the laws are. Essentially, you should play to the laws. And I think actually part of, of cricket, like any sport, is to almost push the boundaries of, of the laws and to almost work your way into the wording of the laws to make sure that you're on the right side of history. And that goes back to, say, boundary catches and the way that that law is written as well, because we've seen people almost exploit the wording of the law to their advantage. And if, if it's within the rules, then to be honest, I think it's, it's play on. Everyone goes playing under the same sets of laws. It's not as if you have one set of laws for one team and, and one set of laws for the other. And again, to, to kind of destigmatize it, I think is, is great because the onus should be more on the non-striker and the way that they back up. Because to be honest, if you're taking that ground backing up, you're not cheating. You, you you have your rights to do that. But if you get punished by being out of your ground, then tough luck, you're, you're out. You're taking that risk. It's just like when you hit the ball in the air, you're taking a risk uh, and you could be caught. The ball might go for six, but you could also be caught. It's a risk that you take. It's the same with backing up. If you back up and you're out of your ground, that's a bad risk if it's caught out. And 
again, I saw arguments even as recent as today saying, well, this takes no skill, this this man-catting or this non-strike run-out. To be honest, if you run in and bowl as fast as you can, do you know how hard it is to stop and, and take the bails <laughs> off at the non-strikers? And if anything, there's more skill on that than if you bowl a rank full toss and it's caught on the boundary. I've seen a lot of wickets being taken with, you know, quote-unquote, no skill. So... For instance, even the non-striker run out where the ball's hit back to the bowler and it brushes off the bowler's hand and it goes onto the stumps. You know, we don't sit around here and say that that's overshadowed the game. So, look, right. I'm glad it's brought up because I think I have a particularly passionate stance on, on this as well. And, and again, it just comes down to the way that the game's changing. You know, for a long time, players were backing up too far. You, you can't... How else are we going to be able to stop someone backing up halfway down the pitch with no penalty? I, I've never really understood why so many people are, are against it. Just stay in your crease, back up, and then once the ball is released from the bowler's hand and the ball is, you know, quote-unquote in play, then you can take as much ground as you want. You almost start running like Glenn Phillips did at the T20 World Cup last year where he waited for the ball to be bowled and he was almost set as if he was running in the 100-metre final at the Olympics. And he got probably a third of the way down the pitch by the time that you know the ball was hit by the non uh, by the by the striker, I should say. So, yeah, look, I'm pro non striker run out for that reason, and I, I think that's kind of where it has to end. I mean, it's the only way you're going to stop you know people backing up five six meters down the track. You know, and nobody will ever know this, but I used to do the Glenn Phillips technique of nice. uh, you know, backing up. Uh, for actually uh, years at the uh, local, you know, the club cricket we play over here. Um, but I'm glad that, uh, you know, that, I mean, it, it's, it. I know a lot of cricketers, and, and I promise we're not going to make this whole episode about this, but um, I'm, I'm glad that it's really initiated this conversation where I think for the longest time, it was just, I remember Murli Karthik when he did it in, I think, English County Cricket, um, and then Kimo Paul in, um, I don't know if it was under 19 as well. It, yeah, it wasn't under 19 World Cup, 2016. Right. And, and then, of course, the whole famous Ravi Chandran Ashwin and Joss Butler incident. It was always met, for some reason, the bowler was always the one who was getting the most criticism, <laughs> which didn't make any sense to me. But now I feel like that conversation now is shifting more into, okay, fine, this is going to happen more and more so let's figure out how to make this more acceptable and i know everyone's coming up with their own solutions like mitchell stark did the other day but at the end of the day if it's in the rules like stop complaining if you don't like it change the rules otherwise let's just stick to it i'm all for it <laughs> all right we'll we'll jump right back into the under 19 world cup i know uh, <laughs> my cat does get us all excited but um i think there's a couple of things which really excite me about uh this under 19 world cup one is obviously the um growth of newer teams so indonesia and rwanda they, they obviously play cricket but um they have not played a world cup before so uh what can you tell us about their paths to the under 19 world cup Oh, it's a hugely exciting time for for both of these teams, and and both of their stories are incredible. And I would stress that that Rwanda's story is is incredible in so many ways. It's in, in its own right. I'll start with Indonesia. Indonesia has quite a, a cricketing history. You know, records actually go back uh, to cricket being played in Indonesia, or what was the East Indies back then, uh, as far back as 1883, I think. Uh, and they joined the ICC as as members in, in 2001. So there's obviously a, a big gap there. 
Indonesia is fascinating. They were introduced to cricket actually by uh, Dutch colonists and not British ones um, throughout the 1880s and 90s. You know, there's even reports that go back to, uh, I think it was 1883 when uh, Mount Krakatoa, the big uh, volcano on one of the Indonesian islands, erupted and there was actually a match that was interrupted by that. We have, you know, records of that um, going on. So Indonesia, or cricket in in what is now modern-day Indonesia goes back uh, a long time. But to kind of fast-forward it to sort of uh, where the game, I suppose, took the, the next level of, of growth was, I think, more in the, the 1990s. There was um, certainly cricket being played at, at local levels in, in parts of Indonesia. And Indonesia is uh, a tricky country to traverse because the place has hundreds of islands as part of its its respective country. The population is huge. I can't remember exactly what the population is, but I think it, it would be around 200 million. Uh, and there are certain parts of Indonesia which are more influenced by uh, Australian tourism and, and people coming from Australia into to Indonesia, Bali, the island of Bali being one of them. Uh, and throughout the 1990s, there was growth in Indonesian cricket. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Bruce Christie who brought cricket to, to parts of, of Indonesia and they kind of call him a bit of a forefather in, in what is now modern Indonesian cricket. They were a, a member as of 2001 um, under the old ICC affili- affiliate um, membership. Um, and then once uh, affiliate members became or were encapsulated as associate members, they became an associate member as, as soon as um, that was, was brought in. Uh, I think... Speaking to people a few years back, they were introducing cricket to, I think it was 60,000 school kids every single year at a certain age level, which, you know, those numbers are incredible just to even consider for any member, let alone an associate member. Uh, And I think they're aiming for around 8,000 regular cricketers across men's and and women's club cricket on a weekend. Uh, And I think they have, I think it's between 13 and, and 15, maybe 16 uh, men's and women's clubs that do compete in in local cricket. Uh, the under-19 system is almost in a, in a similar template to what we've kind of seen from Thailand, another giant in roughly the same geographical area. We know that uh, Thailand are actually part of, you know, the Asian region in qualification and part of the ICC, but Indonesia is part of East Asia Pacific. Uh, but you know, outside of that, their development is, is quite similar. They've put a huge emphasis on the women's program, like a lot of budding associate members have, where they think, you know, that's their pathway into global events is to, to be heavily focused on the women's side. Uh, we've seen that in, in places such as, you know, Brazil, where they've given full-time contracts to their women's team before their men's team because they feel that, you know, qualification for global events might be easier achieved that way. And through that, you know, you unlock a wealth of ICC funding. I'm not 100% sure what that actual fund is, but they took on uh, P&G in their qualifier in East Asia Pacific. They were the only two teams to uh, to essentially have the, the standards of, of qualification met for them to compete in qualifying for the Under-19 Women's World Cup. So they had a, a three-match series and it went down to the wire uh, and Indonesia defended a very small total. I think... PNG might have only needed three or four off the last over and they defended it to, to win the third T20 and, and to qualify. Uh, similar vein to, I think it was in Europe where uh, Scotland and the Netherlands were the only two teams in the region that 
had to go through qualification. Ireland and, of course, England had full membership, so they qualify automatically. And they played a three-match T20 series to determine the qualifier as well. So it's not unique per se, but that's how Indonesia qualified, by beating PNG, who in, in their own right are, are growing at a decent speed in the international game. And, yeah, we've seen Indonesia now on the world stage at, at a World Cup, um, losing to New Zealand, unfortunately, in the first game, as we are recording. But they're a team that has a huge thirst for cricket and, and we can see them in the next five to ten years being a little bit more of a, of a presence on the international stage. And it'll be interesting to see how that five years goes in terms of you know those players feeding into the Indonesian uh, senior international team as well. Uh, they've, they've played numerous international events as the women's senior team as well. There's uh, at least one player for Indonesia who has a T20 I-100 to her name as well. Uh, but they're yeah they're an exciting prospect. Like several teams in in that region, both part of East Asia Pacific and the Asia region. And then looking to Rwanda, their story is is arguably stronger on a humanitarian front. But in terms of cricket development, the the rise and growth has been just as quick. You know, Rwanda is fascinating, and and for people uh, to kind of understand how cricket fits in the Rwanda fabric, you need to go back to the 1994 genocide in Rwanda and, and to be honest I'm not a historian so um, I'm probably not the best person to to really explain that situation so if, if anyone's not really familiar with the Rwanda genocide do do you probably you're reading elsewhere but uh, there was essentially a hundred days of of mass killing uh, against minority uh, groups in parts of Rwanda and it, and it left the country in a in a, in a state of ruin essentially and what it actually forced Rwanda to do they were an old Belgian colony in in French speaking um, in a French speaking sphere of Africa and what they actually did was that two years later they actually enthroned English as their official first language uh, and moved away from the Francophonic sphere of Africa and then by 2009 they actually became part of the English Commonwealth so if you put two and two together here, England and English culture, British culture, British language, it lends itself more to uh, British sport and, and, and British customs and, and one of those being cricket. And the way that cricket actually came into Rwanda is quite fascinating. In the late 90s, a lot of exiled uh, Rwandan citizens who were based in Kenya and Uganda and other parts of Africa actually came back and brought cricket with them. So it wasn't as if it was just, oh, he, we, we speak English now, let's play cricket. It was basically people coming back and, and bringing cricket with them and, and brought organised cricket in, in the late 90s. They became, I think, a board around the turn of the millennium and they became an ICC member in 2003, I want to say. Um, and then, you know, within 20 years, they're now playing at a, at a under-19 Women's World Cup. And the fitting part of all of this is that it's the under-19 women who have qualified and, and the genocide uh, was it was very much a, a, a women uh, an issue surrounding uh, women in the country as well, um, and it is you know rather fitting as I said before that the under nineteen women's team are the ones who have qualified, and, and these Rwanda women who are now playing at the tournament they can't think of a Rwanda before cricket because they were all born in you know say two thousand and to 2003 doing my rough maths onwards so they don't they don't really they can't really perceive a Rwanda before cricket but it just shows you how powerful Rwanda uh, the, the story can be for 
you know, the generations even beyond them who are almost learning lessons, like we said about, you know, other parts of cricket, they're learning lessons from their children. And when they qualified, Africa is a very strong region in, in, in women's cricket because they have a lot of teams that uh, basically play each other all year round. They had a nine-team qualifier at the Africa qualifier for the Under-19 World Cup. And, you know, a rising tide kind of floats all boats in this situation. And it meant that, you know, you had to be a really strong team to qualify out of that qualifier. And Rwanda overturned some pretty strong, perceivably stronger opponents on their run to the World Cup. They beat Uganda. Uh, I think they beat Kenya. And I I think they beat, no, they might not have beaten Kenya, but they beat, I think, Tanzania in the final. And they came home and had a double-decker bus parade through the streets of Kigali. That's how celebrated it was that they qualified for uh, a World Cup. You know, that's that's how big of a story it was. Um, and again, they're such a symbol of, of hope. And, and for a wonder, if you, if you go back, uh, the country's only ever had one... Uh, team representing Rwanda at a World Cup in any sport at any age group level. And it was, I think, the under-17s FIFA World Cup where they had a team qualify on the men's side. Um, they never had a women's team qualify for a World Cup of any type. Um, they've, they've not got an Olympic medal to to show for their toils in individual and, and some team sports. They haven't, I don't think they have a Commonwealth Games medal either. I think they've got one Paralympic medal in one of the disciplines in, in the 400 meter sprint. So, you know, th- that just goes to show, you know, how strong cricket has been to, to deliver something of this magnitude. And, you know, we saw their first game. They had Pakistan in a right situation. They had Pakistan two down for not many early in that chase at a poor run rate. So, you know, had they had their time again and maybe if they've learnt the lessons of a World Cup before that, then they might have been able to jag that win. But there's endless potential in that Rwandan national team and the African region in general. You know, there's 10 to 12 countries who are playing each other a lot. Um, I think Gahunga Cricket Stadium, which is the home ground, and if you haven't seen a picture of the Gahunga Cricket Stadium, make sure to find it. It's one of the most beautiful grounds in, in the world that you will ever see. They've hosted... They host the Gahunga International Cricket Stadium hosted more T20 internationals across men's and women's cricket in a year than any other ground in the world, which tells you know just how much it, it's used and how much cricket is played in the region. And as mentioned before, you know when you have that much cricket, you're ultimately going to blood good international cricketers, and we're seeing that with with Rwanda on the world stage. You know, just from the two examples that you shared, like uh, we talked about Indonesia and Rwanda, it just seems to me that rather than copying a certain style of cricket from like another country, like either from England or from Australia, it seems that they're almost drawing on their own identity as a country and almost drawing from their own history. Um, You know, whatever brought them to that stage, as far as their passion, their growing passion for the game. So that's really heartening to see. And I'm sure that's probably very similar for other countries too, particularly like a country like Thailand too, where their women's team is so, you know, prominent and seem to be on the upswing. But I am curious, and I don't know if you uh, could add more to this. You you kind of briefly talked about how these countries are pushing for uh, women's participation in the game. And a large part of it is probably due to the funding uh, too. Now, to me, that makes sense for like, you know, the senior, like the women's national teams. Uh, I'm just surprised that even at an under-19 level, that uh, teams from these countries, which are outside of the major, you know, like let's say the test-playing nations, 
um, like countries like Indonesia and um, Rwanda, probably even Brazil, but countries where cricket is not the main, not even like among the top sports. Uh, so leaving aside the senior women's team, there is so much passion. There's so much depth at the under 19 level. What do, what do you ascribe that to? Is that, you know, is that just something for, you know, go, girls in those countries, they just want to play any sport and cricket just is a very attractive option or is there some other factor, do you think? It's a good question. I think to a degree that would be correct. You know, it just is part of, uh, for a lack of a better term, part of the, the mainstream sort of discourse in those particular countries where cricket is hugely popular. I know I was looking at actually videos from the Ireland Zimbabwe men's series that's going on at the moment. And if you look to the Zimbabwean crowd, you know, there are actually journalists who are sort of following in Zimbabwe who say, you know, fans don't get up for this for, for football here, but they do for cricket. I think, I think a lot of people, it's not just a full member thing and, and only for some full members where cricket is what's perceivably the number one sport in these places. You know, if you look at parts of, uh, especially parts of Commonwealth Africa, cricket is is the number one national sport. Uh, Uganda would probably be a great example of it where the men's team uh, and the women's team are both at a pretty strong international standard and they're just kind of in that on that precipice of, of pushing into higher end associate cricket. They compete in Challenge League, for instance, which is effectively the third tier of international cricket. Cricket is very much part of the national sporting culture to the point where it's probably the number one sport. Uh, and on weekends, you'll see cricket being played up and down the country, certainly concentrated in in capital cities. But you have to also think too that for a lot of these associate members to flourish and, and to be able to to generate what they do generate on the international level, they have to do a lot of game development. You know, they've got to go in and do a lot of school programs, physical education, sporting programs. Some of that's come through with help from ICC funding, but I'm sure that, you know, especially in Rwanda's case, they've had help through the Cricket Belts, uh, Builds Hope charity, which actually helped fund the stadium and also a lot of cricketing activities there. So there is certainly a, a philanthropic element in how some of the, the teams develop their respective games in their respective countries. Uh uh, but you would be amazed to, to kind of hear and, and see just how far cricket media goes and how far a Virat Kohli 100 goes. I mean, we saw him last night tee off again. But, you know, that's watched not just in, in four-member countries. You know, that's a topic of conversation in Uganda. That's a topic of conversation in Rwanda. You know, I'm sure there are, you know, Thai international women's players or Thai junior players who watch Kohli and, and watch high-end full-member cricket as well. It's very much part of their consciousness. And I know for a fact, you know, as part of the work that we're doing for this Under-19 World Cup, uh, every single player at the, the tournament fills out a questionnaire and they, you know, they they say who their favourite player is, what their favourite shot is, what their ambitions are for cricket. And Rwanda in particular have quite a big English influence in that um, the Cricket Builds Hope is, I think, a joint project with the MCC and uh, maybe even Lords itself. And they've had this English influence. And I think Heather Knight is someone who's actually visited Rwanda and, and played at the Gahunga Stadium. And so many players from the Rwandan team cited Heather Knight as their favourite cricketer. And, you know, who do you want to be like or what's your ambition, you know, in cricket? And so many of them cited um, 
Vera, oh, sorry, uh, Heather Knight, uh, the English English captain. I do have one funny story, actually, while, while it's in my head and, and talking about, you know, this public consciousness. We had the uh, USA uh, player buyers and, again, going through what they want to do, what their ambition for cricket is. You know, a lot of uh, the questions we have uh, are around, like, who would you love to hit a, you know, hit, hit a six off or whose wicket would you like to take the most? And... I can't remember who the the, uh, the American player was, and I probably wouldn't even name them if if I if I remembered. Um, they were asked, you know, whose wicket would you want to take, uh, Virat Kohli's, because I don't really like him, and I just thought that was, you know, that just uh, for me that that just kind of proves just how how big you know cricket and and heroes and 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 having a hero and having a role model and and having even villains you know villains are important in in sport too i think we we should all kind of um acknowledge but you know that that's just how far you know cricket media and cricket influence goes you know as far as you know the under 19 usa women's team and 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 parts of uh, africa and other places you know these people have, you know, they have the, the same role models that a lot of us had growing up, you know, even though we've come from what's, you know, perceived to be more traditional cricketing backgrounds. It's 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 just why we, why we love it and, and why personally I, I love kind of following the emerging game because, you know, as different as we all are as, as people and, and how unique every individual is, there are so many things that kind of bring us together and, and cricket and, and having a, a universal love or hate is, is one of those things. And it's just another reason why, why cricket is, is so powerful in this space, I think. Right. That's, that's fascinating. Um, the one thing I'll, I'll piggyback off, as you mentioned, Indonesia is trying to introduce the game to 60,000 uh, school kids on an annual basis. And for everybody listening, just for context, we had Peter De La Pena on the show uh, last year, and he was talking, obviously, he knows a lot about associate cricket and U.S. cricket, and he was talking about how in the U.S. there's less than 20,000 women's players. So the fact that Indonesia can put the game in front of 60,000 kids on an annual basis is just phenomenal. That, that you know, for context, that shows the scale of cricket. Um, and while, you know, Benny and I sitting in the U.S. do hope that someday there's significant cricket in the U.S., that it, you know, it shows that countries like Indonesia and, and Rwanda, hopefully, will will have a larger role to play in, in the upcoming decades. Yeah, and that's um, the thing. There's so much potential for this game to become truly global. Um, right. as, far, as long as I've followed this game, which is over 20 years now, 25 years now, We've always heard those talks about let's grow cricket beyond the traditional test playing nations. I, I remember the times when they used to talk about growing cricket in China and how that yeah. was like a big goal. Uh, but here we are still, you know, talking the same thing. Uh, and there's just so much potential. And now, especially through the women's game as well. So, yeah, I sincerely hope that uh, we will continue to take those strides and, you know, game will continue to grow in these countries yeah and i think the one other point that i didn't even think about it when we were starting to record but um i remembered the book fire burns blue which is obviously a fascinating book on indian women's cricket i recommend anybody who's interested to read that um, but that talked about a unique problem that women in the subcontinent face and that's especially in you know not in the bigger cities that a lot of these women get married at you know 22 24 27 25 you know and have kids in their late 20s 
Um, so the fact that they're getting recognized at an under 19 level or getting picked is a big motivator to say, hey, um, I have a chance to play for the for the senior team. So I'm going to try for this a little longer. It convinces the parents to go a little bit longer. So from that perspective, and, and maybe this is also a problem elsewhere, but I, I know for a fact that it is a problem in the subcontinent. Um, so maybe this will also help get more talent interested for longer um, rather than, you know, them dropping from the game in, in their early 20s if they don't make it to to the senior levels. I think what I what I would add to that too is that for the likes of say Rwanda and Indonesia, because they 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 almost profits not the right word, but they almost flourish because there's never really been a huge history or a huge stigma around, uh, say, for instance, women playing sport or not really having much of a, of a stigma around. It's probably not as true in in Indonesia's case, but looking at, at say Rwanda for instance, you know I, I can. I've heard several stories from from people working in in cricket who come from uh, they're, they're women who come from Indian backgrounds and and they tell me about all of the hurdles and and all of the misconceptions and and almost the controversy and stigma surrounding you know participating in in women's cricket or just cricket in general and, and getting in on that side uh, and then you know India kind of fast tracking things even in spite of all that but you know if you were to look at, at Rwanda, then there, there was never really a, a negative stigma surrounding, you know, playing cricket as a girl. And then in that respect, you know, it becomes sort of a, a bigger part of of people's lives. And ultimately, they they essentially move forward at a, at a really fast rate and they kind of generate that, that interest. Um, and it's the same with, say, Thailand, who, you know, have been one of the leading lights in women's associate cricket in, in 10 years and how they you know, converted people, players from old, uh, from softball backgrounds and tried something completely new. They had no inhibitions and they were just able to kind of go for it because no one was really stopping them, right? So I think that's certainly something that affects sort of the, the developmental, you know, stages from, from say, country to country. And, and yeah, with that inhibition, and I'm sure you guys probably have stronger maybe anecdotal stories that that surround that but that just tends to be kind of the the feeling from from someone from the outside like me sort of looking in no that that makes a lot of sense um i do want to talk about a couple of things which disappointed me um so firstly i you know when the india squad was announced i was a little disappointed to see a couple of experienced uh players richa ghosh and shafali verma who have already played at the top level and have done you know very well um, named in the World Cup squad. And, and the other aspect is what you just mentioned, Thailand, um, a country which has been doing really great from a women's cr- cricket perspective. Um, we don't see them in the Sunday 19 World Cup, uh, despite all the promise they've shown. Um, so thoughts on those? Uh, th- yeah, Thailand is, it's an interesting one. I think just the way that uh, the, the regional qualifying w- was set up made it, brutal for for anyone in some of the stronger teams in in asia to to miss out uh uae have a a decent sort of program in place i think they've got almost i think they might have eight senior international players playing in the under 19 squad um at the tournament which yeah we'll, we could, we'll, we'll get to i suppose the second part of that question surrounding you know senior internationals can they play in this tournament um yeah, it was. It was. I. I don't think it's necessarily uh, 
Thailand failing in this case. I think it was more that, you know, there, there is seemingly something special brewing on the UAE side of things and, and the way that qualifying sort of panned out, it just meant that the Thailand were the team to miss out. I, they have had a number of young players come into that senior international team and, and play relatively well. So for the most part, Thai cricket seems to be on the sort of straight and narrow that it has been for the last few years. I will say though that there are, well, there will be players in the next little bit, uh, in the next, say, five to 10 years that will give the game away in Thailand just retiring. And it'll be very interesting to see what that transition period is like because, you know, as you guys know, it, sometimes it's you get a bit of a golden age or you get a bit of a coincidence where you have 11 to 15 world-class players who just so happen to be playing at the same time. And the worry is after that, what's next? The glimmers and the, the start of some of the international senior careers for Thailand coming through the youth system in say so far that they should be okay. But I think it remains to be seen in the next five years what happens. In terms of senior internationals playing at the World Cup, I definitely see both sides of the argument. And I think the more that I think about it, I think I tend to side with the argument of if they want to play and if you want to include them in your squad, uh, even if they have played senior international cricket, I think you should play them. And I don't say this with any certainty. Like I, I wouldn't die on the on this hill. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to, to anyone, look, what I'm saying is, is right here because I see both sides of the argument. But I think at a World Cup, I think the mantra should still be that you play to win the game. And if you qualify and if your player wants to travel there, uh, I think they can. And I think the other thing I would add to this, and and, and again, Shafali Verma is a unicorn really. You know, she's played, I think, I looked at it the other day, I think she's played in might be 80 white ball international matches for, for India already. You know, it's a ridiculous number considering, you know, she even, you know, qualifies for this tournament as being under 19. But I think if we're to showcase the talent at this level for this age group, I think it's still a good advertisement for the game. And I think other players at the tournament who haven't played senior international cricket yet, I think they want to test their medal against the best. You know, if I'm a, I, I would like to think that if, if, you know, if, if I was a player at the under 19 world cup, um, I want to bowl to Shafali Verma. I want to get her out. You know, if I, I, I want to try and hit, you know, Fran Jonas of New Zealand for a boundary. Yeah, could you just imagine, you know, going home as an under 19 international and telling all your friends and family, you've you know you've either hit a Shafali Verma off break for six or you've got her out I think it'd be what an awesome story that you could tell you know your family your friends and then down the line hopefully in senior international cricket you, you kind of get a chance to to do it all over again I think the only caveat I'd probably add to that again is that if senior international cricket is going on at the same time for instance, Australia are playing Pakistan in a one-day series at the moment. If the under-19 player wants to play senior international cricket, I, I think they should be playing senior international cricket at the same time. But for someone like Shafali Verma, who who can play in this tournament, um, I, yeah, I actually I, I actually side on you know yeah you you should play whoever wants to go and whoever qualifies. And it's if you want to be the best, you kind of have to beat the best, right? And England, for me, look like the best team on paper considering the vast and strong domestic experience a lot of their players have overall already you know and for India I think Risha Ghosh and, and Shafali Verma are two players who, who fit that but it remains to be seen 
what the women's domestic system has done for the under-19 players and how they test themselves. It's very hard to gauge. Um, And again, we talked about this, I think, in the first question about how these teams are actually composed and how they're put together. Um, And it's fascinating watching how these under-19 teams stack up at age group level because we've also seen it at men's under-19 World Cups in times gone by. There have actually been more surprises between associates and full members just because teams are just run... Uh, different, but also somewhat equal in how they're developed. It just seems that when you go to the senior level and when you go further and further down the funding path and how much the big three dominates senior international women's and men's cricket, that's when you start to see the disparity in teams. Um, At the under-19s, it seems a little bit more even. But, yeah, I'd like to – personally, I'd like to see Verma – I think you want the best playing – I, I totally un- understand the argument against, and I don't have any qualms with people thinking that. But uh, yeah, I, I just think you should have your best players there. You try to win as a team, and you want to showcase the best cricket to the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's not it's definitely not a hill that I would <laughs> die on, but it's it's not the Mankat debate where I feel <laughs> strongly either way. Uh, but having said that, I, I, you know, I've always thought of under 19 as an opportunity or India A for that matter, you know, playing those A teams, B teams, uh, whatever that might be, that's an, that as an opportunity and it takes away from youngsters, but, but fair enough. Um, overall though, I think we, we can say that there's obviously a lot of positives long-term this is going to push a lot of teams, um, to have solid under 19 structures, nurture talents, you know, watch them from a young age, which is, which is great. Um, the one other thing I learned from Snehal Pradhan's uh, Twitter feed was that there's even sessions around menstrual health, uh, things like that are being held, which is which is really fantastic. Um, so overall, just a lot of positives. We're also seeing on the franchise front a lot of uh, countries launching, you know, women's franchise leagues. Um, so with all that progress that is being made in the in the recent years. Uh, I'm curious, what do you think is next uh, for women's cricket? And, and in the sense that what do you think is needed next in, in terms of women's cricket? Um, so if you had the power or if you had a magic wand, what would you do next? Well, first, I think what's important to acknowledge is that the ICC appointing Snail Pradhan as manager of women's cricket is one of the best appointments in, in cricket that I've probably seen in a long time. Uh, I've had the privilege of working alongside Snail Pradhan at last year's uh, Women's Cricket World Cup in New Zealand, where she was actually working as, a, as an insider, which is essentially a, a presenter and, and covering the game on that side of things. But it just shows you she's the Swiss army knife of, of women's cricket in a way. You know, she can do basically everything. You can have her in that presenting role. You can have her in a hosting role doing some sort of women's media. But she's got the brain for not only the game of cricket, but cricket development She's an international, uh, a former international uh, for India as well. So she's got that box ticked. She's got all the street cred in the world. Um, I've never met anyone that would ever say a bad word about Snail Pradhan um, and, and can personally attest to that as well. Just an unbelievable appointment and, and someone that is perfect for that role to, to kind of take the game forward. Um, even sort of reading press releases and stuff and, and some of the, the quotes that, that she's, you know, said and been on record with you just feel that passion emanate you know and beam out of her and and she's just the perfect person I can't I cannot stress how ideal that appointment is and when you ask me to to have a magic wand and to kind of you know throw it around and and see what I can do 
you know, someone like Snell would be someone who would have uh, a lot of involvement in, in the way that decisions are made. You know, she's a good manager of, of people. And I think it's just one of those things that, um, I, I, look, I, there's just nothing that she really can't do in this space that would, you know, everything that she does will, will benefit the game. I think for me personally, in terms of what I, I would personally like to see is that, first of all, the the number of teams, first of all, the, the number of teams at global events uh, on the senior side, both men's and women's, uh, in general, not enough. Not enough teams are able to represent uh, those. And that's a very overarching point. But I think particularly now in the women's game, I think we're ready to go from eight to 10 teams in the Women's Cricket World Cup to have two more teams there. Uh, I think we're probably ready for two more teams in the T20 World Cup as well. I think from the women's side, you would probably need to do it, uh, those to go through global qualifiers like they have done in times gone past. We know that in the men's T20 World Cup for 2024, they're going to regional qualifying where you have a certain number of teams qualifying through each of the regions and those being allocated instead of a global qualifier where you're pitting all the budding qualifying teams into it. I think that framework wouldn't necessarily work on the women's side just yet, but we need to have a global qualifier to ensure that we get the best representatives and the best and the best teams playing against each other more ultimately. And that kind of goes into the next point is that I don't know what the relationship is per se between say the ICC and the Asian Cricket Council, the ACC, but they seem to do a really good job with say the Women's Asia Cup and uh, women's cricket in that region where they have a lot of their qualifying either for ACC tournaments or through ICC tournaments are done via sort of West and East zones first. And then they have their sort of global qualifier as well. And what it's meant is that a lot of women's international cricket is in that region, quite simply play a lot of cricket. And that's the only way you're going to develop the game is to have at an international you know level of, of competition. That's the only way you're going to develop these teams to a point where they are ready to play cricket at the highest level again. The same point that we made about uh, Africa and, and ICC Africa and how that region is run. Okay, they're lucky that geographically a lot of the cricketing countries geographically almost border on each other or they're quite close to each other and it makes things a little bit more accessible. But, you know, they have tournaments like the Kubuka tournament, which fittingly uh, is uh, a competition that commemorates the, the Rwanda genocide to go back to that point as well. But we've seen that the African region is is booming at the associate level because they play each other so much and you get such uh, international ready teams. Like we've seen it uh, of Rwanda at the Under-19 World Cup where they, they go up against Pakistan and they're no shrinking violets. You know, they've played enough cricket to know their game inside out and to challenge, you know, a, a pretty high-end form member in, in women's cricket. It's no secret that there are some regions that are doing this a little bit better than others. You know, to, to use the Under-19 Women's World Cup as the example, USA essentially qualified by default because there were no other teams in the region that that had the uh, that actually qualified to have their teams involved in, in qualification. And there's a few standards that and metrics that that teams need to keep. I think it, it's on participation numbers at grassroots level, um, under 19 sort of national setups and, and the way that that's done as well. The USA were the only nation in the whole America's region. That encapsulates both North America, South America, and the likes of Bermuda and, and other parts of, of countries in the Atlantic, uh, you know, teams in the Atlantic. You know, for the USA to be the only team that 
had had qualification standards to actually be involved in under 19 qualifying that that's that's dangerous and i don't know how involved icc america's is with all this and i know that south american cricket is starting to grow we've seen south american women's championships go from strength to strength and as mentioned before you know brazil have full-time women's contracts for their senior international team how does that stem in terms of say under 19s and and in you know beyond of that it remains to be seen i think personally like again if i did have a magic wand and, and i had more money i I would try and ensure that every sort of region has a hub, an international hub where they just get to play a lot of cricket against each other. And then once you do go into global qualification, you do have um, a a strong standard of of international play. And I think that eventually trickles down to, say, grassroots level. But that's very easy to say. You also do need, you know, levels of grassroots cricket and, and game development to go back the other way, to go back upwards to elite pathways as well so you, you there is you just can't neglect any of the any of the levels of of player pathway and, and and cricket participation because you know ultimately if you if you find a break in that sort of bridge between the grassroots and senior level you, you're never ever going to get anywhere and USA are, are rather lucky in that you, they have an under 19 team that that actually looks quite good on paper you know they beat the West Indies in a bilateral under-19 women's series. They beat UAE in another series in the lead-up to this particular tournament. For all intents and purposes, they look like they have a good team. Now, granted, USA cricket and its politics is a whole other you know, situation. I'm sure you guys are, are kind of aware how all of that kind of runs in all of that. And if you kind of read between the lines in what Shivnarayan Chanderpaul said about particularly women's cricket in, in USA cricket and the way that it's run, there are certainly more you know, other political problems in that as well. But to be general about this, um, I think that's where I, I'd want to go. I'd want strong regional hubs for all regions of international cricket and then at, at the other end just to ensure that there's there's kind of a one-size-fits-all sort of game development process or even just a, an introduction in, into cricket at, at, say, school level where, you know, you, there's a certain number of metrics that you have to hit and uh, and you just go by there and you have, you know, this, this the right number of, say, level one coaches ECB or, you know, Cricket Australia, however you want to sort of um, ensure that they're qualified to do it through that way as both ends of that bridge. But again, it gets murky when you move in, you know, through the age groups and through regional cricket and through, you know, provincial cricket. It becomes very, very difficult to, to maintain that all of that is is kept above board. Right. And I think the point about playing enough cricket cannot be, you know, overstated because, at the end of the day, if you look at the men's under-19 World Cup, obviously 2022 was an exception with COVID going on, but 2020 yeah. was won by Bangladesh, which was the team that had played the most uh, out of all those under-19 teams competing. Same thing with the 2018 the team led by Prithvi Shah had played the most games. So match practice and just having the right structure goes a long way. And obviously, to your point, we, we still need pathways from there on otherwise we'll have under 19 players dropping out and, and doing other things if we don't have a pathway to senior senior cricket but um but yeah regional hubs and, and making sure there's enough practice definitely is a really really key step yeah um you know for for the longest time i feel like the icc is always an easy target um some cases i would say justifiably so uh but i think personally for the most part I think they've done a great job uh, in recent years as far as growing the game and, you know, really pushing for teams to develop 
like um, you know the women's uh, uh, women's game, uh, like in in the, in in the member countries, and of course we are, we haven't even touched on Afghanistan, but I think it, it's very heartening to see you know like the appointment of Snehal Pradhan itself. It, it's testament to the efforts, serious efforts uh, that is being made to continually grow, continually improve, and focus on growing the game in, you know, the lesser, uh, uh, you know, outside of the major cricketing nation. So, uh, so credit where it's due, I think the ICC is, you know, doing a pretty decent job in that front. And speaking of which, um, you know, you said right at the outset of the call, um, because, you know, like talking about you, you've written for Fox Sports, Seven Cricket, um, you've been a commentator for Emerging Cricket, and now you're also... Uh, you know, working for the ICC. And at the beginning of the call, you said, you know, in your words, you work for the ICC, but you don't work for the ICC. (laughs) You have a difficult time explaining to people what you do. So let me give you an opportunity right here on the podcast to uh, talk about what you're, what exactly are you doing for the ICC? Okay. So uh, in terms of what I am doing for the ICC, there is a bunch of, of written content and journalism work on top of social media and other kind of content production that I do for the ICC. Where it gets murky is that I'm employed by a digital client who actually work for the ICC. So I'm employed by a company um, and then that company in turn has been essentially employed by the ICC to help them fulfill part of their digital and 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 um their, their digital capabilities and their and their social media and stuff like that so the way that it, it kind of works and if people have kind of followed it maybe in in recent weeks because a lot of the contracts are, are put up again for renewal the icc outsources not outsources but they use particular clients for different things marketing is done by a certain company you know the content management system of iccricket.com is run by a different company um and then in terms of, yeah, the, the digital space, we're employed to, to do that role. The ICC does have its own digital team that we report to as well, um, but we do do a bulk of of their written and, and editorial content. So it's a strange relationship for me in that, you know, as someone who started, you know, the emerging cricket movement with Nick Skinner and, and Tim Cutler four and a bit years ago, uh, We've been ones who have covered a lot of associate cricket and, and cricket that was for a lot a long time uh, undercovered. And being part, or at least seeing kind of the way that the that that ICC operates and, and manages things, you can tell that you know in in some departments they have quite a big number of people working on some things, but in other departments they have you know, very small teams that they have to ch- try and, you know, outstretch and do a lot of work. You know, for instance, the the global development team, which is headed by uh, Will Glenwright, who we've had on the Emerging Cricket podcast before, you know, he stressed, you know, it, it's so hard. You know, they've got outside of the full members, you know, there's over 100 associate members as part of ICC membership. And, you know, quite simply, it's it's very hard to, to ensure that, you know, operations in every single one of these countries is is going well. But it's it's good, you know, for me, it's a great opportunity to, again, as someone who has a love of the associate world and emerging cricket, it, it's good to be the one who is, and the ICC is the platform to provide a bit more of a voice and, and more stories in this regard. Because I think it's about 
you know, changing the conversation. You know, the the, the motto of the ICC is championing the, the the global game, and you know, there as mentioned, you know, there's almost 110 members of the ICC now. It's important to 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 showcase, you know, every single one of them, you know, as best as you possibly can. Uh, it, it can be it can be tricky because. I know for associate members and the way that ICC funding works, you know, the money doesn't stretch particularly far. You know, a lot of members probably only have three or four employees uh, and it means that things can be quite difficult. And for stuff like social media and for writing and communications, it means that it's very hard for them to get their points across. You know, I've been trying to get in contact with people from several countries, you know, trying to get stories and, you know, people don't get back from me, back to me for, you know, a week or two weeks, just because there's just so many other things that they have to do at the same time. And I find that, yes, the ICC are, are culpable for some things in international cricket. I find that a lot of people kind of just lazily point, as you mentioned, I think, Benny, before, they just kind of la- lazily point the finger at the ICC for, for not doing certain things better or in a different way. Um, and quite a few things are actually outside their remit, especially at national level in, in, in some regards too. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing for, for me is part of, you know, working as part of the ICC, getting to glo- go to, to some global events as well is, is fantastic. But it's just about, you know, providing stories for, for all of these places and, and, and being, being the voice um, and yeah, being able to do it at, at other places, but yeah, it is important to do it as, as part of the, the governing body and, and, and changing the conversation too. The only thing, the other thing I would add too, is that because of the rights deals that the ICC has with um, social media platforms, it means that in some platforms, there is a lot of coverage and there's, you know, videos galore and, a lot of coverage there, but in other places, because they have these deals locked up with social media companies, it means that other places, it looks like the ICC are lazy and they're not doing anything, but in actual fact, it's more of a contractual thing. Um, the example that I can kind of give, and, and this is public knowledge because this has been you know acknowledged in, in the media before, uh, ICC have deals with Facebook and Instagram, Meta, um, and a lot of the content, basically all the video content has to go through those channels. Um, it means that uh, the ICC can't post video content per se really outside of very uh, odd examples or very individual examples. No videos will go to Twitter and uh, TikTok is off the table as well because there's Facebook Reels and TikTok's also banned in India as well as we as we all know. So the ICC have to essentially focus all their video content across the meta channels. And then when you get to written content and you get to images and stuff like that, that's when you do see more of a presence on the likes of, of, of Twitter as well. So a lot of people just don't understand that. Um, and, you know, the echo chamber of Twitter being such that a lot of people will turn around and it's like, oh, the ICC are not doing any work to promote the game or this competition. You know, what are they doing? They've got that here. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. And the other thing is too, too is the way that you're, for me, one of the biggest challenges is, okay, yes, I watch a lot of associate cricket. I watch a lot of ICC TV content. But, you know, to the average viewer, to the average reader, what do they need to know? You know, what do they want to read about? And we got a, a bit of a pushback actually from people within, you know, under-19 circles that were bemoaning the fact that a lot of our previews for the under-19 World Cup, for instance, were centred on the players who had already played senior international cricket and why we didn't sort of cover some of the other players. And yes, we do want to, you know, highlight everyone, but, you know, for the average reader, they're kind of looking for the big players, you know, and 
for the 1% of people that, you know, bemoan that lack of coverage. Well, to be honest, like what we do isn't really for you. You know, if you have that much knowledge about under 19s women's world cup cricket, then why are you reading a preview? If you've already done the research, you know, this doesn't do anything for you. So I think for some, you know, in some reasons, you know, there is a lot of finger pointing and, and I'll be honest, you know, there probably was a time where I was one of those people, but you know, when you, when you work in the industry and you kind of understand, you know, what, what goes on, it, it makes a lot more sense and, it, and it's a lot clearer, but yeah, to kind of tie a bow on a very long point, it, it's complicated. Things are complicated. You know, work is, is complicated. And, you know, if I can write something that, that teaches someone about something or, you know, gets the point across about, you know, for me, passion being associate cricket and, and you know, let's make no bones about it. Like full member international cricket is fantastic as well. Um, and there's so much of that going on. And, you know, I'll, I'll watch full member cricket as much as I do sort of associate cricket, but that's kind of where it's at. And yeah, I, I can, I, I, as I was saying to you guys before we recorded, I can sleep safely and soundly in my bed knowing that, you know, I'd like to think that personally I'm doing more for cricket than the, the previous day and it just, it, it works that way. But yeah, I, I will put my hand up and say that it, it can be complicated. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, the ICC is staffed by people. There are people behind the scenes working. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, it is easy to ascribe blame to a faceless organization Um but there are people like you um, who are working, you know, not just behind the scenes, but on the ground. And uh, we do owe, uh, you know, we need to say a big thanks, thanks to you and to the countless people who work to bring attention to associate cricket, because there is enough coverage and conversation around, you know, the big three, so to speak, and, you know, the other test playing nations, but, to hear and to read about what's going on with, you know, the upcoming cricketing, you know, countries, um, you know, people like you and another, you know, friend of the pod, Jay Dunsinghani, like you do some great work. And so uh, we are very appreciative of that. So th- thank you for all that you do. Uh, before we wrap it up, though, who are you backing uh, to win this under 19 Women's World Cup? Probably the toughest question you've given me so far. I think <laughs> Best well, way to end, right? Yeah. Before, before I forget as well, I think just to kind of wrap up that last point, it's just an idea that sort of popped in my head. Uh, it's going to be interesting, I think, in the next, say, five years too, even from an ICC digital standpoint, what the direction is there. The plan is for, for ICC digital to kind of go in a similar direction to what cricket.com.au is in Australia, where it's run by Cricket Australia, like ICC digital is run by ICC, but there's very much a sort of fork in the road where you have kind of one road leading to say media releases and, and, and press releases and being official. And then you have an editorial side there too. So I think in the next five years, that sort of relationship will change and, and people will look at it in a different way, whether or not they perceive it as such. Um, it, it begs the question, uh, but to wrap up and yeah, this question, it's a doozy early. My early thoughts were England I think there's enough domestic experience between the 100 teams and uh, the Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy where there are so many pro cricketers and pro-ready cricketers in that setup. And I think it's very much a team game, T20 
women's cricket to a point where you just want someone or one or two people to stand up on a particular day and you know it becomes a team effort when it's a whole competition and you've got to do it consistently all the way through to a final and to win the final Uh, and I think England is probably the team that ticks all the boxes as much as I hate saying that you know living here and and being Australian of course Uh, I'd put uh, I'd put India reluctantly second and I'd actually probably put Australia right. at this. From what I have seen between this World Cup and, and some of the players that I have seen for Australia, I think we're a little bit um, a little bit behind in the way that we'd like to do things. I think it probably won't translate necessarily to say 10 years down the track where I still think Australia will probably or very likely be the best women's team in the world, even if a lot of these players are in that team, that senior team, because I think they'll play so much state and domestic cricket in the next, say, five to six years where they are more ready. Um, so I think, yeah, right now I would say England, but, you know, New Zealand would be a team that I'd, I'd keep an eye out on as well. Uh, I think, yeah, they're probably your, your four favourites. But, I mean, Bangladesh showed us what they can do as well, and I'd, I'd definitely have to put Bangladesh in that conversation too. And, you know, the next five, ten years of Bangladesh women's cricket is hugely exciting and I look forward to them, you know, playing a bigger part uh, at global events. And, yeah, they might just drag this one as well. But for now, I'll say England. Awesome. I mean, I, th- I think uh, given Bangladesh's defeat of Australia, I mean, we might be in for a few more, you know, interesting games, which nobody could have foreseen. Uh, but Daniel, first of all, thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, again, for all that you're doing. Uh, and for our listeners, you can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel G. Beswick uh, and, of course, uh, Emerging Cricket as well. Uh, but Daniel, thank you so much. Please do come back and uh, we'll probably do an entire episode on uh, <laughs> the monk <laughs> next time. Let, let's do it. I'm, I'm in. I, I, that's a hill I will die on. But, yeah, thanks, thanks guys, for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to an episode of The Last Wicket. Do check out other episodes on your podcast app of choice or at thelastwicket.com. This podcast is a Cricket Guys production featuring your hosts, Benny and Mike. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.